0: Why don't we go ahead and open with prayer and then we will jump into this tonight. Uh, Heavenly Father, we look to you tonight. I just uh, want to express our gratitude to you because you love us so much as to reveal to us your plans for the future. That you have laid out, O Lord, the the path. You have uh, given us uh, an insight into what's going to happen in the days ahead so that we can be prepared. And I ask you, Lord, that you'll speak to us tonight. I ask you to uh, give us grace to grab a hold of the things we're going to be look at, looking at, to understand them, uh, to be able to apply them to our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I wanna get a, a few kind of general things out of the way and then uh, we'll jump into the study tonight. Um, my intention is that this is gonna be about an hour long each week. Um, We'll see whether or not to open it up for questions. I'm a little concerned that that could go long, but we'll see about that. Uh, But I'm thinking it would be about an hour long. Um, You got a handout when you came in tonight, but next week, Lord willing, it's going to be, we're putting together an actual booklet and so it'll include these notes plus the rest of the study is all going to be in one place uh, so you got to come back next week to get a hold of that uh, this week they'll use this for any kind of notes that you want to um, take i would encourage you to bring your bible um, usually of course on And during our services, we make the verses available on the screen, and so it's not as essential that you have your own with you. But uh, many of the weeks, I will probably be going at some point, verse by verse, and highlighting specific words. And uh, depending on how you feel about this, in my Bible, when um, I discover that a particular word has special significance, I actually put a note right there in the Bible. I just note that this word means this, or this means that, and so that's something that you may wanna have when we get to the verse-by-verse part of that. Uh, I don't know, by the way, how far we're gonna get tonight uh, with the notes that you have in your hand, because this is a first run at this, but we'll, we will see how this goes. Uh, last thing, I wanted to ask a question. Um, I'm wondering, uh, for whatever reason, how many, ju- how many of you just came tonight and were not able for one, whatever reason to come this morning. Can I see just a hand, you came tonight, but for whatever reason couldn't come this morning? Okay, just wanted to get some sense about that. All right, well, Revelation is kind of a journey of sorts. And um, I think it's, for many people, it's a scary book. Uh, I, I love the book of Revelation. I think it's absolutely fascinating, and over the years, it, to me, has become clearer and clearer, and I'm hoping that it'll be before all said and done clear for you as well. But there are a number of reasons why I love the book of Revelation. One of them is this, that to me that it implies that God is going to fix one day everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden. So you read Genesis and you read all the things that went wrong, but one of the interesting things about the book of Revelation is that there's a lot of symbolism related to Genesis and Exodus. Revelation is a wonderful bookend to the Bible, and so if you don't see that connection, you won't appreciate what's happening there, but, but the Bible kind of begins with this garden, and, and Revelation ends with this garden, and things are getting fixed. And I love the fact that that's the case. It's really the perfect ending to God's wonderful book. Second, I love the fact that it reveals that God is in charge. It shows that God gets the final word in everything. He's he's laid it out ahead of time. What's gonna happen? He knows what's gonna happen, and you know the end of the story? I I hate to be the one to uh, tell you the end of any book, but he wins. You know, (laughs) I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but he wins, and that's very, very encouraging to understand that God wins in the end, and I think this is something that helps us as we go through life to realize that it's not just all haphazard, and history's not just unfolding but God is, is working things in a particular way and he wins in the end. Third, to me, it shows that God is gonna correct all the injustices that are in the world today. And there are a lot of injustices. And these days, it seems like so many people are, are doing horrible things and, and then right before they get caught, what do they do? They, they kill themselves. And then it, all of a sudden, I'll read in the newspaper, they got away with it. You know, they did not get justice. Well, yes, they did. Someday justice will be served. And this is for us, I think, an encouragement. It's uh, for us, actually, a motivation to persevere when we go through difficult times. This is what Paul said to the Thessalonians. Uh, when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, they were going through an intense period of persecution and it was very hard for them, and Paul wanted to remind them that, well, in the end, in the end, things are gonna be made right. This is what he wrote in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses four through 10. He said, therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your endurance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions you endure, It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you are also suffering, since it is righteous for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and reward with the rest of you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven with his powerful angels taking vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the presence of the Lord and from his glorious strength in that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be admired by all those who have believed, because our testimony among you was believed." He's just saying, you know, it's, it's hard in what you're suffering right now, but this suffering is serving a good purpose in your own life. It's a refinement of sorts. It kind of puts you in the same camp as Jesus who suffered, and so it's a good thing in that sense, but also, one day God is gonna judge the world, and one day God's gonna make things right, and, and, and Paul writes this. I don't think he's saying so that you'll, you'll get vengeance on your enemies, but it is encouraging for me to know that God's gonna deal with things. And from what I talked about this morning, it it means that I don't have to be angry. I don't have to take my own revenge. It also talks here in these verses about the fact that we're gonna marvel at Jesus. Now, a lot of people avoid the book of Revelation. In fact, I'm curious, how many of you typically have avoided the book of Revelation? I mean, uh, there are lots of reasons why I think people avoid the book. One is I think it's, uh, it's confusing with all the symbolism, a lot of imagery there that it's like, I just don't understand what's going on. Martin Luther apparently wanted to throw the book of Revelation out of his Bible. He said it just doesn't belong there. He couldn't, he couldn't grasp it, he couldn't understand it. And I admit it is indeed a confusing book. Second, I think that there are so many different interpretations that people have. And so you might, you might conclude you can't know I think we can. I think we can know what's gonna happen in the future. But, but you, you look at this person says this, this person says that, who's right, I can never know. And it's easy for us to want to avoid the book altogether. And then I think for some people, it's just plain a scary book. Someone was telling me about, I think it was their father this morning, how their father avoided the book of Revelation because it just scared him. And, um, and that is, there are some scary parts to the book. You know, when, when people in our culture today say God is love, God is love, but they ignore the fact that there is a judgment side to this equation, I think they're overlooking um, an aspect of God in his nature and in his glory. But the book is worth it. And there's some benefits to studying this book. One of them is that God promises a blessing to those who read and apply it. In Revelation 1-3, we read, the one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed because the time is near. Now, I'll talk about that verse in a short time here. But anyway, to read it, to apply it, there's a blessing that's associated with this book of Revelation, if, if we'll actually pay attention to it and not avoid it. Uh, second, I think it provides for us a motivation for godly living. I think uh, knowing that this is how things are gonna end should help us. You know, and again, this is something in our culture that's going by the wayside. Uh, some of it, I understand that during the uh, the latest democratic debate there was a. a A commercial by ron reagan that was showed during that how many of you are familiar with the commercial it was it was a it was a commercial for uh the abolishment basically of religion i forget what the name of the group was um it's freedom from religion and ron reagan the son of the former president goes up and he He says something to the effect, I have been a lifelong atheist, and he talks about how religion is this just horrible thing on our society and it just burdens people down, and then the last thing he said was, I don't care if I go to hell for this. I kid you not, that's what he said, I don't care. And there are a lot of forces out there trying to say, well, there is no God, and and then it allows everyone to do whatever they want. I think it is for us, indeed, a motivation for godly living. Uh, Third, it provides us with an incentive for evangelism to be sharing our faith. And this is where it touched me, I think, the most. How many of you uh, saw the video series in the 1970s called A Thief in the Night? Any of you see that? It's classic. I mean, if you get a chance to see it, and if you want a, a, a movie or a set of movies, it really became many movies, but a set of movies that captures the 1970s, the way they dressed, the way they acted, it's just, it's just great. But this movie called A Thief in the Night, it's a reference to the fact that Jesus Christ one day is coming back, and he's described as being coming back like a thief in the night. In other words, unexpected. For most of the world, and that we are going to be caught up together with him in the air. It's a movie that's about this event called the rapture, which we'll talk about that, but there are many verses in the New Testament that talk about, well, actually both the Old and New Testaments that talk about the fact that, that one day we're going to be caught up to be with Christ in the air before he comes to judge the world. This event, it's called rapture. It comes from the Latin. It just means to be caught up. And before Jesus Christ comes to judge the world, we're gonna be caught up. And this movie kind of captured the moment in which this rapture event took place and people kind of disappeared. And then it showed what happened in the world afterwards, but it's really compelling. And I saw this movie and it just kind of stirred my heart. And so I asked my dad whether or not we could show the movie at our church on a Sunday evening. And he said, well, if you can guarantee that at least 25 people will come to watch it, then I'll cancel the Sunday evening Bible study and we'll go ahead and do this movie. But then he said, you've gotta run the event. And I said, okay. And and it was well attended. My In my neighborhood, um, seven of my friends came to this movie and at the end, after watching this movie, um, I gave an invitation. I invited people to put their trust in Jesus Christ because Jesus is coming back and you wanna be ready and you don't wanna be left behind. And, uh, Six of the seven went forward that night to pray to receive Christ, and just was—it just was wonderful. But one, one of them didn't. And what was odd about the one that didn't go forward that night to put his trust in Christ was that this was the one—a friend of mine that I've been praying for almost every day for a year. It's the one, one friend that I thought of. Any of them get it? That's the one I want to get it. His name was Sean, and. And he didn't go forward after, so all these neighborhood kids went forward as well as some other people, and, and he didn't go forward. And I just got a little bit saddened by it, but then he grabbed me to the side, and he, he asked me this question, can God really forgive me? He said, I've done so many bad things. He was only like 13. <laughs> and he thought, what, did you murder somebody? No. <laughs> He was just so stirred in his heart about his sinfulness and his need for a savior. You see, part of, part of what the Holy Spirit does is he convicts us of judgment. The, the role of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin and judgment and, and, and other things as well, but he, he just became aware of his sinfulness and I assured him that yes, God can forgive all of your sin through faith in Christ. And so we went in a back room and I prayed with him Privately to receive Christ and tears were streaming down his face. And the first thing he said is I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. He was the one that was most impacted by the message, this idea that there is a judgment and Christ is coming back and you don't wanna wanna be in this world the way things are gonna be and left behind if that happens. But I think that this evangelism is, to me, a motivation. And along the way, I'm gonna give you, some stories that that demonstrate how this is effective as a um, means of evangelism. Okay, on your outlines, if you turn to the page, uh, I think it's your first page that says Revelation study. Is that uh, your first one? There's what it looks like, it'll be up on the screen. And I wanna talk, uh, give you some background now to the book of Revelation. Um, it's called the Revelation, Revelation 1, one It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, I want us to understand that the word revelation means an unveiling or disclosure. So if you're taking notes, that's what the word means, an unveiling, it's like an opening it up for us to see. That's what a revelation is. It happens, by the way, to be a translation of the Greek word, apocalypsis, from which we get the word apocalypse. And so when you talk, you hear about people talking about the apocalypse, it's the same idea as Revelation. It's the unveiling, and so the book of Revelation is an unveiling of Jesus Christ and the events that are gonna take place in the world at the end. Now, when it says Revelation of Jesus Christ, it's using that, I think, in two different ways. Uh, I think he's both the source of the revelation, and so it's his revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus, but in addition to that, he is the object of it, and that's the main thought of, I think, that statement, when you say the revelation of Jesus Christ, the main thought is, once and for all, Jesus is gonna be revealed for who he is. The story ends with him reigning as King of kings and Lord of lords, it's the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ, In his glory, the same glory that the disciples witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was changed before their eyes and suddenly began to glow like the sun and you begin to see, hey, that sounds like Genesis, or uh, Revelation chapter one. Jesus Christ is being revealed to us. I wanna mention this too, that um, the word revelation is singular. So people sometimes will say, are you studying the book of Revelations? Uh, it's really considered revelation. It's the, the one main revelation of Jesus Christ as the how it's usually termed. Who's the author of the book? The author is John. And scholars are in, in pretty good agreement that this is the same John who penned the Gospel of John plus the other three epistles. Let's read verses one and two. The revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave, John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ. Now, some of us might be a little bothered by the word slaves. It says this was revealed to the slaves of Jesus Christ. And it was given to John the slave, but this is the, this is the best word to describe it. This was, we're regarded here as ones who belong to Jesus Christ. We are his more than servants even, bond slaves, ones who out of our love for Jesus Christ serve him. And we recognize him for who he is. He is our, he's our master and he is our Lord. Now, it says here that this is about what must quickly take place, and and sometimes we can get bothered by that because we think, what do you mean quickly? This book is like 2,000 years old, and I don't see anything quick about it. Well, many feel like a better translation is soon, or really what the idea is this, that when the events begin, they'll unfold quickly. It's what's gonna begin to take place quickly. Many feel like the starting point is what Daniel talked about in the Old Testament. When the season of the Gentiles is done and it's time for Christ to begin to unfold things, it's gonna happen very quickly at that point. And that's probably more the spirit of it, although it's certainly more soon for us than it was when John first penned the words. It's gonna happen. Many people link this to the birth of the nation of Israel on May 14, 1948. That is uh, for many people the starting point of, of God beginning to unfold rather quickly now this prophetic calendar and this is why I'm convinced or one of the reasons why I'm convinced that we are indeed in the last days. The, the rebirth of the nation of Israel which was an impossible event I mean, it's it's just incredible if you think about it. The the ancient nation of Israel came back. I mean, this would be like calling the Babylonians, you know, starting to call people Babylonians again or Assyrians again, you know. An ancient people has come back again and God promised that this would happen and there are prophecies related to the rebirth of the nation of Israel, how God was gonna bring people from all the different parts of the world back to the homeland. And he was begin, going to begin to unfold certain events. Now, why the Israel thing is so significant is that a lot of the biblical prophecies center around the, the the finishing of the promises or the completing of the promises to the nation of Israel. We are in what's called the season of the Gentiles right now. After, after Jesus was crucified there, the, the, and the Israel lost its It's country, and the the temple was destroyed. We've been in what's called this time of the Gentiles, but there are hundreds of prophecies in both the Old and New Testament that haven't been fulfilled yet, and God promises there's going to be a revival of the Jewish nation, and one day, he's actually gonna rule in Israel over a new nation. And by the way, I think we're going to be part of that. What is the date of the book? Uh, there's some discussion about this, but most conservative scholars believe it was about 90 AD. It was during Domitian's reign. Emperor Domitian, he was exiled. The location was to Patmos. Patmos is located about 50 miles off the coast of modern day Turkey, it was a Roman penal colony. What's interesting about John's story and being exiled to Patmos is that tradition has it, and it's well-established tradition from several sources. So it's not just fanciful, but tradition has it that John uh, was captured by the emperor and they tried to put him to death by boiling him in oil, of all things. So they dropped him in this big pot of oil and they expected he was gonna die, but nothing happened to him. It was like Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego in the Old Testament. He did not die, and they resisted didn't kill him, so what did they do? They exiled him to Patmos, this penal colony, and it was from here that Jesus appeared to him, and the angel appeared to him, and he began to pen this story. Now, the key verse of the book of Revelation is Revelation 1 and verse 19 where we read, therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. This is the threefold playing out of the entire book of Revelation. He was writing what, was, what he's seen, in other words, what is, in the present time, he was told, you write what you see. And so he describes all the things he sees on Patmos at that moment. But then he also talks about what is, in the present tense for all the churches. And so when you get to Revelation two and three, you're looking at current churches that lived, uh, that were scattered around Turkey. Again, the country was Turkey. And it was the current spiritual climate of those churches. Now, when we get to that, Lord willing, next week, I wanna demonstrate that many scholars believe that those churches don't just represent real churches, but they actually represent church ages. And the last one, the last church is the church of Laodicea that describes the church of today perfectly. And the other ones did too. When I, when I was at Bible college, we actually, I took a church history course and we used Revelation to teach the course. We went to the different churches and said, okay, here's this church and talked about what happened, what was true of that age. And then the next stage, and then the next stage until we came finally to the church of Laodicea. And so he's writing what he's seen, he's writing what is, and he's writing what is to come, and that's how the whole book unfolds. It's the current vision, it was was what was happening in the present, but it's also what's gonna take place in the future. Now, there are three major approaches that people have to the book of Revelation. Uh, The first one is a historical approach. There are some people that feel like the events you read about In the book of Revelation, those symbolic have already happened. That have happened in 70 AD or other places and they assign a a historic fulfillment. And so for people who believe that, Revelation is not a future book. It's a past book and it's describing things that already took place. I do not believe that. I don't believe it. You, you, You can't, you really cannot even determine what John's talking about if that's the case. Second, some view it as a spiritual book. They think the entire book is symbolic. And so when they get to the section, for example, toward the end of Revelation where there's a description of this millennial kingdom, a thousand-year kingdom, they say, well, it's not not really a thousand years, and it's not not a literal kingdom, it's a spiritual kingdom in which Christ reigns, and, and all of this symbolism. it's all spiritual, everything happening in the spiritual realm. And once again, I I don't believe that. The third approach is prophetic, and that is how we're going to be looking at this. I'm convinced that the the book is prophetic. I think it's spelling out what is going to take place in the future. Now, in in order to interpret the book properly, um, there are some other books in the Bible that you need to have some connection with, and to me, they're the key. If you read the book of Revelation, but you don't have these other places to look at, you will not be able to interpret it properly. But if you connect Revelation with these other sections, it begins to make sense. What are those other places? Well, these are primary ones. There are more than these, but these are the primary ones. First one is Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. Chapters two and seven are the main ones. Daniel describes some things related to the end of time. He describes a kingdom that's birthed during the end times. He describes a world leader that's gonna rule during the end times, all of that. Uh, and, And Revelation talks about it as well. The second one is Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus talked about this. Jesus actually quoted Daniel. And Jesus ties it together and he says, this is exactly what Daniel was talking about. And then Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25 lays out a a timeline. Well, it's the same timeline we find in Revelation. And then the last one is uh, the first and second Thessalonians. Both of those books talk about the the end times, and once again, they refer to Daniel. And so Paul refers to Daniel, he ties it back together, Jesus ties it together, and then you get to Revelation and you begin to unfold it. You say, well, how does that fit together? Well, if you go to the page, the next page, I think it is called Harmonizing God's Word Concerning End Times. By the way, on the book that we wanna give you next week, we're gonna give you some extra blank pages just for notes about every third page. So if, if you wanna... Take additional notes here. This is, this is uh, something that I think will help us understand how we can understand the book of Revelation. So you've got to the left there the three, three main references, Matthew 24, uh, Revelation, and first, or Second Thessalonians 1 and 2. So these are some of the main ones here. And then you see a person standing there. The person standing there is you or me. Okay, this is, these are events, everything that happens after this line has not yet happened, but it's getting close to happening, but it has not yet happened. Now, if you're taking notes, there are two additions that I wanna recommend that you include to this diagram. The first one comes at that first line by Matthew 24 where the, the figure is standing and put an arrow that points to that line and write the word rapture. This is one of the options as to the timing of the rapture. A lot of uh, Christians who take a a literal approach to the Bible believe that the rapture, the return of Christ to take us to himself will occur before this tribulation period and these other things that are going to happen. It's called a pre-tribulational rapture. The second... I want you to put a line, or toward the end there where it's that little short line before the long one at the end of that first line, where you've got those three things, sign of the end, sign of the Son of Man, gathering of the elect, that gathering of the elect is the second place where it's possible that the rapture takes place. And so I put a line there with an arrow, rapture. I have a question mark by both of them. It's either here, or it's either here. There are other approaches as you'll see in a minute here, but these are the most compelling too. we We're either gonna be taken away before all the bad stuff happens, or we might have to go through some of it. Now, I was raised in a pre-trib position. I, I, when I studied at Bible College, it was a pre-trib position, and I studied all the verses about why we believe it is pre-trib. and And I... I'm not convinced anymore that that's the right answer. To me right now, there's a new position called a pre-wrath position, which we will talk about, but it makes some sense. In fact, it makes a lot of sense, and if you're going through the book of Revelation, it falls in place perfectly. The pre-trib position doesn't. Now, let me just talk about uh, these different positions. If you go to the, oh, I don't Let me see, there's, you have another chart there called pre-millennial rapture positions. Find that chart, it's about four more pages in your document. We're gonna come back to this harmonizing um, God's word concerning end times in a minute. So pre-millennial rapture positions, there's one called a pre-tribulation. And so the pre-tribulation, Rapture believes that there is a seven-year period of time in which there's going to be God's wrath and tribulation, and then there'll be a millennial kingdom where Jesus is gonna reign for 1,000 years. So that's what this chart is about. You say, what is that 70th week about? Well, that comes from Daniel. Daniel described that at the end of time, there's gonna be seven years where some things are going to happen. And the pre-trip position, and, and difficult things, an antichrist is gonna sign an agreement with Israel. Persecution's gonna take place in the middle of that seven-year period. There's gonna be a, a bunch of bad things happen. And the pre-trip position says, we're gone. We miss all of that before the 70th week. Right before it happens, God's gonna call us home to be with him. And then the second coming would refer to Jesus coming back to physically reign on the earth for a 1,000 years. I think he's coming to get it right. Uh, This might seem a little bit simplistic, but when you do a timeline related to Adam and Eve, you realize that about 6,000 years has passed. It's almost as if God gave humanity 6,000 years to figure the thing out, and then the last 1,000 years is this millennial kingdom where Jesus is gonna reign, and Christians will reign with him as well. It could be just that simple. The beginning of the seventh millennium, Jesus is coming back to reign. But that's the pre-trib position. Mid-trib is some think that Jesus is coming back in the middle of that seven-year period. Daniel and Matthew and Paul in the Thessalonians, all of them describe that a world leader is gonna rise, he's gonna be a blasphemous individual, uh, and, and he's, he is gonna make a, an agreement with Israel a seven-year agreement of peace. Now, let me just tell all of you here today, if you hear in the news that some world leader is making a seven-year agreement with Israel, we need to talk. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, that's the key defining thing to this 70th week business, this seven-year period. He's gonna talk about peace, and in Thessalonians, Paul says everyone's gonna be saying peace and safety, finally, they're gonna be celebrating. And then, Paul says, but their destruction will come on them suddenly, because in the middle of that seven-year period, he's gonna turn. He's gonna go and oppress the Jewish nation That's what Jesus was talking about. He says, when you hear of the abomination that causes desolation in the temple, you flee. Don't even go back and get your stuff. You leave quickly because an intense persecution like the world has never known is gonna take place at the beginning of that three and a half year, last three and a half year period of time. I will demonstrate to you when we get there that it'll spread to Christians. It'll spread, it'll start with the Jewish people, it'll spread to, Christians the, Christians and Jews will be the most despised people on the planet, but this Antichrist is gonna go into it, the new worship place where the, the Jews will have. He will defile it and, um, and declare a persecution. But a lot of Christians think we're gonna go through the first part of this tribulation stuff, but the second part where it gets really, really tough, we're gonna be taken away. It's called a mid-trib rapture. Uh, there's... I think very little support for that. I have not seen, frankly, I've read all the positions, or I've read everything about every position, but I've read the arguments for all the positions. The mid-trib, I just see no basis for it. Why, why God would say, okay, now it's getting really hot down there. Let me get you out. I don't see a basis for that. The third position is a post-trib. This group says that we're going to go through all of it. And then Jesus is gonna come back at the end of the seven years, we'll be caught up with him. You notice the arrows there go up and down because this position says that you'll go through seven years of persecution, the rapture will happen, you'll be caught up with Jesus in the air. See, Jesus said that was gonna happen. Do you remember when he said you'll be caught up with me in the air and thus you'll be with me forever? And um, we'll be caught up with Jesus in the air, but then we're gonna come right back down. It's like he's gonna gather us up all in heaven and then come down to the earth. And when we're gathered up, by the way, Paul and others make it abundantly clear, we'll get our new body at that point and we'll be changed at that point and we'll come to reign with Christ in a physical kingdom that will mostly consist of 144,000 Jewish people, not Jehovah's Witnesses. 144,000 literal Jewish people that God is going to preserve for his kingdom, and he's gonna do it right, and Psalm two talks about that and other psalms. When we get to all of these, I hope to show you a bunch of the verses related to them. Uh, The pre-wrath position is the one I more lean toward. This has the tribulation starting, the great tribulation starting, but then sometime shortly after that three and a half year period, comes this rapture. And we're gathered with Jesus in the air. And then at the end of it, at the end of the seven years, we come back and we reign with Christ. And then there's this millennium. And so these are, as you can see why this would be called pre millennial rapture positions. So God has all, or the, all of these positions have that Jesus is coming back before this millennial kingdom. It's a real kingdom. It's a thousand years. And it's just when it happens. Now, Most of the positions about this rapture timing and everything else I have some difficulty with because a lot of the positions have an approach to the Bible that I don't agree with. A lot of these positions symbolize things that I think are meant to be literal. In the book of Ezekiel, for example, Ezekiel is told to measure this this city and this temple that don't even exist and he's told the exact dimensions. And people say, oh, that's all symbolic. Well, why on earth would, why on earth would he be told, do it exactly this, this length, this width, this height? He describes all of this because these are future events. The pre-trib position, to me, is the most scripturally biblical across the board in terms of its approach to the Bible because the assumption with which it approaches all of this is that this is real stuff. Uh, one of the rules of interpretation, biblical interpretation, is that you can't, you're not allowed to symbolize something unless there's a basis for symbolizing it. If there's something in the text that gives you the basis for symbolizing something, you're allowed to symbolize it, but otherwise you take it as, well, this is the case. So you read about a garden in Genesis. Well, there's no reason to think that's symbolic. There was, a I think, Garden of Eden. We know exactly where it was. It was located between four physical rivers. It's, it's, it was right there by the Euphrates and the Tigris and all these rivers, so it's a real place. And so when I approach the Bible, I I read it as, well, this is true when I read about Jonah and the fish, which by the way, it was not a whale, it was a fish. Whales' throats are too small. I have no no reason to think it's symbolic. Some people think, well, that's all symbolic. Well, Jesus did not think it was symbolic. God did that miracle with Jonah specifically because it was intended to be a picture of the day that he would spend three days and three nights in the earth. It wasn't symbolic. I don't, but if, if there's no basis to symbolize something, I'm just saying we don't. And the pre-trip position takes a literal approach to the things you read about in the Old Testament, literal approach to all the prophecies, both in the Old and New Testaments. Now by literal, I don't mean that there's no symbolism because Revelation is filled with symbolism. Literal means that if it's intended to be literal, you take it that way. If it's intended to be symbolic, a literal interpretation means you take it symbolically, if you understand the difference there. But a lot of positions are based on, I think, a faulty view of the Bible. The other position that is strictly biblical is the pre-wrath position. The only difference between the two positions, the only difference, between the pre-trib position and the pre-wrath position of when Jesus is coming back is the timing of that one event. And so we've got to examine when exactly is that event gonna take place. Now, if you want a little head start on this, I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 4. You know, you, if, if Thessalonians, both first and second, are very short, so you can find this here. But Paul describes this, this antichrist figure in one of the chapters there. And Paul addresses a question, and this is the question that Paul was addressing. He was asked the question, um, how do we know that the, the Jesus hasn't already come back? How do we know that the, basically the rapture hasn't taken place yet? You know, he says, don't be disturbed, Paul wrote, about this rumor you hear that, that it, these things have already happened, they have not happened yet. And then Paul gives his reason for why he says that, and his reason is a little surprising. He says, don't you remember that Daniel talked about this guy, this abomination? of destruction, this guy that's gonna come up and he hasn't appeared yet. So we know it hasn't happened yet. Well, what's interesting to me about this is that if we have a tree, pre, tree, pre-trib position of the rapture, Paul's answer should have been, you wanna know whether or not Christ has come back again? We're here, duh. I mean, I mean, you don't have to. You know, you don't. There are no signs. We're here. It hasn't happened. I'm here. I'm writing to you. You're here. That's not what he says. He says, "Don't you realize that these things cannot happen until the abomination that causes desolation is revealed?" It implies that we're going to see that which is quite fascinating because if as Christians we actually see the signing of a seven year agreement, we see the breaking of an agreement at the three and a half year point, we know when Jesus is coming back. Now that might surprise some of you because no one can know the day or hour. Well, we'll talk about that too because that phrase doesn't mean exactly what we think it means. And when we get there, I'll talk to you about that. Now let's go back to my timeline. So go back to the harmonizing God's word. Let me ask you at this point, I'm going on and on here. Are we tracking? Are you tracking with this? Yes? Yes? Yes. Are are people getting, anyone getting lost here that's willing to admit like I'm having trouble following what you're saying here? You can tell me afterwards. (laughs) We're basically, I mean, everything we're talking about in Revelation here, we're basically talking about what's gonna happen at the end of time and a judgment that's gonna come on the world, but we know from Daniel and, and other places, we know that that period of time is only seven years in length, and then the end will come. And we know there'll be a millennial kingdom, and so all of what we're talking about is, is the seven-year tribulation period, the signing of this agreement that kicks the whole thing off and a rapture event that happens right before that or in the middle or the pre-wrath position or the end. And then Jesus coming back to reign for a 1,000 years. So that's that's kind of the story. That's kind of the timeline. So you've got Matthew chapter 24. And Jesus describes this as the beginning of birth pains. The first three and a half years after this agreement is made with Israel, he talks about false Christs. He talks about wars, famines, earthquakes, and stuff like that. Then, Jesus turns up the heat. He talks about false Christs, persecution, apostasy, death of believers, the preaching of the gospel to the end of the earth, and then if you keep going, he talks about an event called the Day of the Lord, which is the Judgment Day. That's what we call Judgment Day. And Jesus, read it for yourself. In, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus says the sun is gonna go dark, the moon, the stars are gonna fall from the sky. That is the wrath of God. That is the judgment of God. And so Jesus spelled all this out. You're gonna hear of wars and rumors of wars. You're gonna hear pestilence. You're gonna hear all these things, but the end's not yet. And then there's gonna be a persecution like the world has never known. When you hear of the abomination that causes desolation, you better flee. And you're going to flee for their lives. They're going to be protected in Petra for exactly three and a half years in probably the caves there. And then Jesus comes back and he's going to judge the world, and every eye is going to see him. And then it talks about the sun and the moon, and, and judgment day begins, and then Jesus will come to reign at the end of that. Revelation, the book of Revelation. <clears throat> Chapters six through nine and 12 are the first, what they're called, the first four seals. But if you read about the seals, you'll see that it talks about false Christs, wars, famines, the same kind of things Jesus talked about. And so you realize that when you read about the seals in Revelation, it's referring to what Jesus talked about. By the way, I mean, I'm referring, this is like a summary thing, so I'm talking about things we won't talk about yet. As we we unfold it, I, I hope it'll be really, clear the unfolding of this thing. In the middle of that, in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, you read about the martyrdom, a bunch of people getting martyred, an intense persecution. Well, Jesus talked about that too. And so we know exactly where in Revelation it is that this persecution takes place, and we know where it was and what Jesus was talking about. And then you read about the seven trumpets in the book of Revelation. Seven, of course, is the number of completion. It's God's judgment. And this is the wrath of God against unbelievers. And you read about all these things that are gonna happen to the world. You don't wanna be here for that. And then you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter one and two, and he talks about persecution, trials, suffering, and distress, which goes all the way through to the day of the Lord. And then he talks about Christ being revealed in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7. Relief from tribulation, which is probably the rapture, being gathered to Christ in chapter two and verse one. And then he talks about unbelievers being punished with everlasting destruction in the verses I begin with, Second Thessalonians 1, verses eight and nine. Now again, as we're unfolding this, I wanna bring those verses back in so that you'll be able to see them. So you'll see, okay, we'll read what happened in Revelation, then let's read the Matthew one, and you'll see how they tie together and why I say that this is how this should be interpreted. Okay, if you go to the next chart then, an end times prophetic timeline. And this is my uh, understanding of how this thing unfolds. And if you want just a general picture of the book of Revelation, this is it. This one page summarizes the whole book of Revelation, which is really important to, to see because I think if you don't see the chapters within this whole story, it's hard to understand it. But if you begin to see how this thing is supposed to unfold. so. Number one, the seven churches represent the church age of which we are a part. And I believe we are the church of Laodicea in the present. But even if we're not, it's, it's representative of the, of the church age. Next week, I wanna talk about the different churches. Two, beginning now or soon, we have signs that point to the end times. Understand that God wants us to know when he's coming back. I think sometimes we get this idea because Jesus said we won't know the day or the hour that God doesn't want us to be ready or prepared. We, he, he wants us to be ready. We don't wanna be caught on, off guard, Paul said, like when the thief comes in the night. We wanna be ones who are awake and alert and we see what's happening. I am of the opinion that as these things unfold, as we go further down this chart, uh, we're gonna know. We're gonna know. Exactly what's happening. But some of the signs of the times, the false teachers and messiahs will arise, and there'll be more of them. There'll be more wars and conflicts. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. Jesus talked about it, but again, it's in Revelation as well. If we're thinking that we're going to get to some world peace sometime that will usher in this Jesus' nice millennial kingdom after peace finally comes, it's not coming. It's only getting worse. Natural disasters are going to increase. Revelation describes a worldwide earthquake. You know, Jerusalem's going to be split completely in two. And things are, they're going to break apart. When I look at some of the things happening today, I don't want to get into the climate change business or whatever. It does seem to me that things are changing a little bit in terms of just weather and stuff. I'm not gonna venture why. You know, I think there's more agreement than people think on both sides when it comes to whether the, the climate is changing, whatever. I think people do, I think most people can see things are kind of different. It's just they disagree whether or not it is a man-made, is it a cyclical thing, what's going on here? Is it, now many feel it's not true either, but I look around and I think, you know, weird stuff is happening. Well, Peter and John wrote about the fact the world's gonna wear out. This planet wasn't meant to endure forever. It's, it's crumbling under the weight of sin, just like we are. It, it's, it's aging like we are, and so I think that's the future of the world. I, I, I wish I had a better answer to say if we do this, we can bandage this or whatever else, but, I think we're going to see more. We're going to see pestilence, and it's going to get worse and worse. I think it might even usher in this Antichrist who will have a bunch of the answers that the world is looking for. Widespread death is going to take place. Unraveling of societal fabric, especially 2 Timothy 3 1 through 5. If you want to read a description of the day in which we live, that's it right there. Increase in knowledge. Daniel talked about. The gospel will be preached all over the world. That's the final sign before Jesus comes back. On the day that the last person puts his or her trust in Jesus Christ, I think Jesus Christ is coming back on that day. Matthew, or Jesus, describes all this as the beginning of birth pains. And so as we see these things, what is it about birth pains? Well, we know that they get more intense and they get closer together as you get closer to the baby being born. You know, it gets more, more painful, more intense, and the, the pains come closer and closer together so that it's, it, it works in such a way that anybody could see, hey, this baby's gonna be here anytime now. Well, that's the illustration Jesus used to describe when these things would unfold the beginning of birth pains. You begin to see these things, so just watch. See what's happening in the world. Then the kickoff for the events that mostly we'll be focusing on in Revelation, the Antichrist will sign a seven-year agreement with Israel. I've got the references there if you want to check it out for yourself. The Antichrist will break his agreement with Israel in the middle of the seven-year period. Then persecution will break out against God's people. It's all over the place. Again, the same timeline. Then a remnant of Jews will be protected by Jesus. The rapture will take place. Now, this could come earlier. It could come after two. Or it could come even after one in some ways. The rapture will take place. Christ will return to judge the world. Christ will reign for a 1,000 years. At the end of that 1,000 years, humanity will rise up one last time against Jesus. It'll be the last battle will take place. And then Judgment Day for unbelievers. And then finally, there's gonna be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, the last chart I want us to look at tonight, I, I wanted to start reading Revelation, but. It, I don't, I, we will, I don't think we'll have time to do it. Uh, is the next one here. There's a chart here called Summary of Revelation. And this is, this is my understanding of, of the book. So I think it is helpful to see this called sub, Summary of Revelation. It's not of Revelation one, it's just Revelation. And here's something that um, to me opened everything wide in terms of my understanding of the book of Revelation, I don't know at what point I saw this. Maybe it was something somebody taught. I don't know what happened. But I realized that Revelation is kinda like, could be drawn like a bullseye, where the first 11 chapters of Revelation describe the beginning from the end. Then the next several chapters only focus on the last three and a half years. And then the last couple chapters at the very end. And so what you have is a situation where you've got all of it summarized like a big circle, and then he focuses just on this time of intense persecution, for several chapters, and then he focuses. The littlest circle is on the end of all things, and so to me, it's it's not like it's completely linear. Linear one through eleven is linear, but then I would overlap it with the next uh, eight or so chapters. I would draw a line. The next eight or so chapters take it from the middle of that tribulation to the end, and then the last two or three chapters I would put at the very end. There, it's the reign of Christ, the eternity, and whatever else. And so if you realize that that's kind of how it's laid out, it'll make sense because when we're in one part of Revelation, we can jump to another place and say, okay, this is how it's described in more detail later in the book of Revelation, and it helps us understand it. But the basic summary is in chapters 1 through 11. And so I have here chapters 1 through 11. It's the church age, seven-year tribulation period, rapture, Jesus comes to to earth to reign. Specifically then one through three represents the church age. Four and five represent a pause in heaven to establish the authority of God and his son to judge the world. You'll see this happens several times in the book of Revelation where the camera, in a sense, goes from what's happening here to what's happening in heaven first. And that's what happens here in chapter four and five. There's a pause in heaven. God is getting ready to do something at the end of the church age. Chapter six, we read about these things called seals. This is the the three and a half years of the first part of this tribulation. Chapter seven is the sealing of the 144,000 witnesses and the rapture of the church. To me, it happens in Revelation seven. And again, I've got some some of the Matthew references over there to the right. Chapter eight is seal seven, which encompasses the wrath of God. It's gonna be the beginning of the judgment of God. Nine is the trumpets five and six, which is judgment on people. Chapter 10, Jesus comes to earth at the end of the great tribulation. Chapter 11, there's preparation to build a temple. There's a death and resurrection of a couple witnesses. and and trumpet seven, which Jesus comes to reign. And then 12 through 22, it's just the final three and a half year tribulation period. It's again, the reign of Christ moves on to judgment day and our eternal home. Um, Okay, I wanna stop it here tonight, but I've debated this and we'll see whether or not this could work or not. Uh, I might have overwhelmed you Already, I will say that each of the weeks, I'm gonna do some summaries of this, so if you hear it enough, I think you'll, you'll put it all together, because if you're hearing all this for the first time, I just gave you a dump, I just, here it is. Go home, have a nice sleep, you know? Uh, it's, it is it is a lot to process, but I, got, I have to do kind of the overview before I could really jump into it a little better than I'd like to do, but I did wonder about this. Um, I have a mic down here, and I wondered if we have just a a couple questions that anyone would have the courage to ask. So I wanna open that up, because if I've overlooked something significant or there's something that you just say, this doesn't make sense or I don't get it, um, I wanna make that available here. Of course, that takes the courage to come up here. Maybe the rapture will happen before you make it. (laughs) <clears throat> then you'll be spared the embarrassment of an embarrassing question. I don't know, any? Okay, here comes the question. There we go, yes. The one thing in what you said about <clears throat> pre-trib versus- uh, Pre-wrath. Pre-wrath. rath yeah. uh, If we see a signing of the seven-year agreement, yeah. then it's gonna be pre-wrath. I think so. Yes, and so we wouldn't have to see. Actually, could you hold that for me? And then you could be there for, um, I mean, when you see whatever. No, that's exactly right. I'm looking for, I'm looking for a seven-year agreement. And I'm also looking for the characteristics of that leader. Uh, The person that's described as this antichrist is described in very specific ways. It's a blasphemous person. It's someone that's gonna dare claim himself to be God and the world's gonna believe it. Of course, if you're a Christian, you'll say that's blasphemous, but it won't, the world won't think so. And so there are certain descriptions of this individual, and when I see a, an agreement made by someone that fits that description, well, let's just spend the next seven years in the Book of Revelation. Okay, any other questions here? Okay, yeah, yeah. So if anyone, I just want to give a little opportunity because I don't want you to leave without something really big hanging over your head. <clears throat> Um, if we go through the, um, as Christians, um, we the pre wrath um, will God give us special grace and um, strength to get through the persecution that we may face? Uh, yeah. So did, yeah, um, I think He will. Although it does talk about a lot of people dying as martyrs for Christ. What's interesting about that? is the way they die, is their head is, is cut off. I used to read that and think, oh, come on. They'll, they'll be shot, they'll be hanged or something, but nobody cuts anyone's head off. Yes, they do now. Yes, they do now. Infidels, they'll cut your head off and they'll put it on the internet for everybody to see. It's the new way to die. Okay, yeah. Tim, I don't wanna put the cart before the horse, but you said earlier, about the Bible says that not even the sun knows the day or the hour. Are you going to go into detail on that? I can. I mean, not tonight. You don't have to tonight, but. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, now, um, two things about it, though, right up front. One is that Jesus said that when he walked on the earth, and we recognize that when Jesus walked on the earth, he cloaked his divinity. He chose to operate I believe 100% in his humanity. So even the miracles he performed were at complete reliance on the Father. So as he walked the earth, he only knew what the Father revealed to him, and so part of what he's saying is the Father's not yet revealed that even to me yet here, because he was operating just in the realm of his humanity. So, but there's that phrase, no one knows the day or hour, has religious significance in one of the Jewish feasts. So it's very significant, that, that phrase. Okay, go ahead. My starting point generally is involved with the building of the temple. Is that tied into your teaching as well? Uh, yes. It, it appears that there, there has to be a temple built in Jerusalem by the time the covenant is broken. Now, my guess is that the agreement that the Antichrist is gonna make might be an agreement to allow Israel to build a temple. At the very least, what we know is that the sacrificial system will start up again. If you begin again seeing the Jewish nation sacrificing animals again, we're getting really, really close. Uh, Of interest, uh, maybe to you, um, I had a friend that lives over in Israel And he confirmed this to me, that that Israel has been buying stone, huge blocks of stone from a company actually in Indiana. He checked it out. He said, I went there. I checked it out. They're buying it supposedly for the temple. And they're training high priests right now into the ancient ways of how to do the sacrificial system. And devout uh, Jews wanna get the sacrificial system started up again, so yeah, I think it's coming there will be a temple. Can I have a follow-up question? Yeah. Do you think that's in that seven-year period or is it gonna be prior to that? It's possible it's prior to that, but it doesn't have to be. So that's why I said it's possible that that will begin when this Antichrist signs an agreement. And then in the middle, he'll change his tune about that. But it's possible it'll be built ahead of time. There's some things going on over in Israel, I can tell you that. I mean, they're preparing, there are groups that are preparing for this devout Jews that are trying to get back to those days with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they'll die for that. So it's gonna happen. So over here, front. I just have a question. You said um, he would call up 144,000 Jews. Yeah, yeah. The Jewish people don't believe that Jesus was the son of God. That's right. So I I don't understand how they would be called when they're truly unbelievers of Jesus. Yeah. I, I mean, can you explain that? Because I asked you this after the Jewish synagogue shootings in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I said, how could they go to heaven when they don't believe in Jesus? Yeah. Um... The reason that they're gonna be preserved from the millennial kingdom is, is just because have, uh, the grace of God and the promise of God, he said they would endure until he would reign over them. So he's protecting 144,000, but scripture seems to indicate in the Old Testament, Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah, it indicates that they will see the one they pierced, and they will cry like someone losing a firstborn son. I think that what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a national revival. When Jesus comes back, everyone will see him and they'll realize what they did. And at that point, they'll know, and they will believe in him, and they will form the basis. So I don't think they're, they're not Christians, they're not saved, they're not believers, while they're being hidden or preserved, but God is preserving for himself a people over whom he will reign and the specific tribes and 12,000 from each of them are somehow by the grace of God preserved, but it, they, won't, they will not be, their eyes will not be opened until Christ comes back. So it's at the end of that seven year period that they become believers, and then they usher in the new kingdom. So maybe two more questions and then we're, we'll be done for tonight. So, or if there aren't two, that's fine too. Okay. Yeah. Is that just that hundred and forty four thousand that was at that time? Well, the persecution against the Jewish nations will kill many, many people. God just promises that He will preserve that many. There'll be others probably as well that'll be alive during that season and they'll come into the millennial kingdom. Other people will be alive, they will enter the millennial kingdom, perhaps. But he's just saying that I, I have preserved for myself that many, of course 144,000, it's 12 times 12. And you remember there are the 12 apostles and you got the 12 sons of Israel so it's highly symbolic, but God has preserved this one group, he's gonna just protect them until he can reign over them and show how, how you're supposed to reign. A benevolent dictator is where Christ will be a loving and make every right decision, and this is how you do it. So, did that answer it, or did I miss the question? Got one more here. Okay, one last question. Yes, what about the Antichrist, the 666? Uh, so um, we'll, we'll get to that section, but this, this is the, the thing that I think kicks off this middle of the tribulation period. That happens at, at that three and a half year point where he's gonna make it so you can't buy or sell without getting a mark on your hand or your forehead. Uh, and it's, it's called the mark of the beast. It's, of course, six is man's number, so it's a, a direct affront against God. It could take a lot of different forms. I just read yesterday an article that in Sweden, people are now getting the chip in their hand that allows them to buy and sell. And um, and medical, all their medical information's on that. And that's the future of the world. And so um, it could be something that's demanded. If you wanna buy anything, you've gotta get the chip or whatever. I don't know what that's gonna look like, but I think there will be a way where you show your alliance to the Antichrist by getting a special mark. And I'll say this, that anybody who gets the mark is irredeemable. Makes it very clear in the book of Revelation, if you get the mark, it's a one-way ticket to hell. You've, You've chosen your side, you've aligned with the wrong one, you're done. So whatever you do, now I don't think getting identification or getting a tattoo on a hand, that's not the mark of the beast. I think it's, what's key about that mark is that it has to signify your allegiance with this world leader, and then Christians, of course, won't do that. And so you'll be able to tell instantly whether somebody's a Christian or not. What a, a brilliant idea. What if you could go around with a flashing sign on your head that said, I'm a Christian, and everyone goes, there's one, there's one. You see why an intense persecution would break out, everyone else helping with the hunting? It's gonna be like that, I think, so. With that encouraging note, (laughs) why don't we pray? Father, thank you that um, your grace is sufficient for everything we would face. Thank you, Lord, again, that you have laid out things so that we don't have to be caught off guard. You know in our hearts desire that that we would be removed before any of this starts, and yet, oh Lord, we wanna be prepared, if we need to be, for hardship that could come. So I just pray you give us again a greater and greater understanding. I pray you give us grace again to help these truths translate somehow into our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Again, next week we'll, Lord willing, have the booklets available that you can take notes in, and not just the handouts. Have a blessed evening.